So the other day, I, I started reading this apologetics book, and um, I read this really startling statistic that is talking about this uh, youth exodus. So like the amount of teens that leave the Christian faith after high school. And this is what I found out. It says about 70% of teens leave their faith when they go to college. And about half of them come back. But still, that is a lot of people. But what really got me is that it said 46% of youth already starting to check out of religion by middle school. So that was upsetting to me. Think of that. Like half of you guys by middle school are already starting to spiritually check out and you're just waiting for the chance to not have to go to church. And so that was upsetting to me. And in the book, it even said sometimes youth groups are essentially holding tanks with pizza until the kids go to college, which we do love a good pizza here, right? But um, what, what's crazy, though, is I don't feel like this was the case for me when I was in school. I mean, sure, a lot of kids went to church because their parents made them, but there was a lot less questioning, and there was a lot less pushback uh, from the rest of the world, whereas now I feel like Everywhere you go, especially high school and middle school, you're being faced with these choices and these conflicting um, opinions everywhere and these decisions of whether or not to follow the Christian faith. We're being bombarded with different ideologies and theologies every day. And our, our hope here is that we would help you think critically about your faith and be encouraged to then go and spend the time to understand uh, your faith yourself. So our hope is that you would be faced with the gospel and moved in a way to then go experience God yourself. And I think we can fall into to different spectrums. Maybe you're someone who has um, heard of God's love, like you've accepted that you believe it, but you've almost become numb to it because you, you've heard the gospel so much and it's lost its excitement. Or maybe you're someone who is still just not sure you can believe in God's love for his people. Maybe you're just not sure if this is real. But, so we need to figure out how to move from a place of obligation or disinterest or simply just showing up for the sake of checking it off your parents' to-do list. We need to move from that to a place of love and gratitude toward God and a desire to genuinely follow him. But how do we get there? How do we move from simply doing the Christian things or having good behavior to living out a genuine faith? And I think the prodigal son story can help us with this. Um, so we've been camped out on the prodigal son story for a few weeks now, right? Like we've, we've walked with Jesus in the book of Luke, and we've done this, um, followed his path and seen the different things. And then now we've been at this story in Luke 15 for a few weeks. Uh, we started with, we focused on the younger son, and then we went to the older son. Last week, Dave redefined sin and lostness for us. Um, so by now, you probably have the story down, right? So the younger son comes to the dad. He asks for the inheritance early. The dad gives it to him, and so he leaves. He abandons the family, and he spends all the money on reckless living. And so then he returns, and the father forgives him, and he welcomes him back with open arms, and he celebrates him. And then you see the older son mad, and hanging out outside, and he's self-righteous, and he's very blind to his own pride and lostness. So 
This can show the, the two ways that we can tend to fall in our own lostness. Either we abandon God and turn our back on him, or we feel like we do everything right, so we almost don't even need God, but often we don't even recognize that we're feeling that way. But either way, we see this need for, uh, for them to turn back to God. And we see the father's love for his children in this story, regardless of their struggles. But there's one thing that we haven't considered yet in this story. You know how we always say that all of Scripture points to Jesus? Well, we see this here as well. So you remember how Jesus, when he tells this parable, he says two other parables back to back. So he says three parables in a row. And so his listeners are hearing this and remembering these three parables. And so it was about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. So in the first two parables, we saw that the person left everything and went through this tremendous effort to get the thing back, right? Like the shepherd left the other sheep and went out into the wilderness, trekked through this dangerous wilderness to bring the sheep back. And then with the coin, we saw the woman clean the entire house just to find this one coin. So now we see rejoicing at the end of each story, this, this rejoicing of finding the lost thing or the person. But what we didn't see, we didn't see in the lost son story, is no one goes out to find the son. He comes back on his own, and, and it feels like something is missing in that story. So let's think about the elder brother. What should the older son have done when the younger brother left? So what we do see, we end up seeing that he stays, and he basically cuts his losses where his brother's concerned. He's like, he is dead to me. Like, I don't care. I'm moving on with my life. And then when his brother comes back, he's mad. He's mad that he's being celebrated and forgiven. So what we don't see in this story is we don't see an elder son willing to seek out his brother and bring him back into the family. But we kind of wish for that, right? Like his brother, he should have gone out and found his brother and brought him back into his family at his own expense. But the older son here didn't want to do that. And in fact, one of his accusations to his dad is, how could you spend all of this money on your son, and then now you're even throwing a party for him? Um, so he, he didn't want anything to do with him. He didn't want to spend any more time or expense on that guy. But what's ironic is that his brother's redemption still cost the older son. So you remember how the father had to sell off the property, right, to give the younger son his inheritance. So everything left is going to go to the older son. So everything that he has is literally the older son's property. So this father, this party that the father throws is from the older brother's portion. So the older brother did end up paying for his brother's redemption. Does that make sense? So when we think about this story, a lot of times we can think how this redemption and and forgiveness is free, and it, it is free to the one who is being forgiven, but it still comes at a cost. And we see that the father's forgiveness is free towards his son, but we also see how costly it was to himself, to the older son, to accept the younger son back. Tim Keller says this, he says, mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then it isn't mercy. But forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting the forgiveness. 
So think about like if one of your friends broke your phone. Well, you have two options, right? You can either make them pay and buy you a new phone, or you can say, don't worry about it, like I forgive you, but then you have to go out and still buy a phone, right? Because you need a phone. So either way, someone has to buy the phone. So your forgiveness to them is costing you because you have to make up for what they did. So forgiveness always comes with a price. So the older son paid the price of his father's forgiveness toward the younger son. And so what, what we longed for in this story is the true elder brother who is Christ. Christ is what we've longed for in here because he is the one that came not just from another town but from heaven itself to seek us out and bring us back and sacrifice everything he has and is to graft us back into the family of God. So he too paid the price for our forgiveness. So you remember how I talked about the father's reckless love, how, how in the story the father's love shows God's love for his people. And that's not meant in a negative or irresponsible way of, of lacking wisdom or, or harming someone else or being wasting your resources. That's not what reckless means here. What it means is it's ex- extravagant. It goes beyond our understanding because God will go to any length to redeem his people. So he will spare nothing at an expense to himself and his own life because he loves his people so much. So whether you're a rule breaker or a rule follower, God's grace extends to all. If we can understand the costliness of God's forgiveness and the beauty of the cross, then we can truly move into genuine faith. So we can move from simply doing the Christian behavior to having a changed heart that's changed from the inside out. We need God's love to become real to us because God's love changes us and change happens when we fully understand the beauty of God's grace. So Jesus' sacrifice and his selfless love should affect us from the inside out. Tim Keller says that selfless love destroys the mistrust in our hearts towards God. It destroys the mistrust. So that love that Christ has shown us should secure your trust in God. So anytime we have doubts of God's goodness or whether Jesus really is the way, the truth, the life, then we can look to this kindness, to this sacrifice that he has made for us. Romans 4.2 says that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance isn't just about saying you're sorry. It's about experiencing God's mercy. So this love moves us from doing doing the good deeds with wrong motives or, or thinking that you can do enough good things to outweigh the bad things or from trying to be our own Lord and Savior. It moves us from this trap that we often fall into, thinking we just need to change our behavior. It's kind of like putting a Band-Aid over an infected wound. It's, it's not going to it's not going to help anything. You got to you got to root out and clean the inside for the outside to heal, for the outside to change. The inside has to be healed. So salvation moves us from a behavioral change to a heart change. So our inner motivations are different and we long for the things that Christ longs for. Again, Tim Keller says this. He says all change comes from deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out of that change that understanding creates in your heart. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our self-understanding, our identity, and our view of the world. 
behavioral compliance to rules without heart change will be superficial and fleeting. Did you know that all other religions in the world say you must obey so that you're accepted? But Christianity says you are accepted and loved, therefore obey and follow. It's not our repentance that leads to his love, but his love that leads to repentance. Think back to that, the story of the prodigal son with the father's love for its kid. He initiates his love and acceptance of both sons. When he sees the younger son coming, he runs out to him and he freely forgives him. And then when we see the older son pouting outside, he comes out to the older son and begs him to get rid of the anger, get rid of the pride. So he reaches out to both of them. So it's not the son's repentance that causes the father's love, but it's his love that brings forth his remorseful affection. So God looked upon us and saw someone trapped in things that we think will bring us freedom, but instead only enslaves us, and he had compassion on us. He drew near to us. He approached us, and even in our shame and our dirtiness, he emptied himself so that we could be made whole. I think sometimes we can struggle to understand the extent of this gift, just how precious it is. and Maybe we don't always realize that. Um, but Paul asks a good question when we think about this in Romans 6.15. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. I think some of us think that, oh, well, I'm saved. I've got grace. I'm good. I can pretty much do what I want, right? Like I'm saved. But Paul is saying, don't trample on the gospel. Like, don't, don't cheapen it. It's like if somebody gives you a really expensive gift and you're like, oh, thanks, like, we'll put it over here. Or you, like, put it on the ground where it's going to get trampled on. No, that's not what you do. You, you don't toss the gift aside. You take it. You cherish it. You, you wear it. It's like you wear your hand-knitted sweater your grandma got you because you know how much time and effort it put into it and how precious and valuable, valuable it is. Like, you cherish that gift. So we should cherish this expensive gift that was given to us and allow ourselves to be moved into this new attitude and approach of life out of our gratitude and love for God. Think about your home. When your parents ask you to do something, do you do it? (laughs) But why do you obey? Why do you do what they ask? Is it a fear of getting in trouble? Is it a fear of disappointing them? Or maybe you just don't like the consequences because you don't want your phone taken away or grounded or, you know, whatever happens. But if you know that you're not going to get a consequence, like if you know that your parents aren't going to find out, nothing's going to happen if you don't do the thing that they asked you to do or not to do. If there's no consequence, do you still obey? And the question is, why? Isn't it out of love and respect for your parents like, you've, wit- you've witnessed how they take care of you. You've seen their love for you, and you trust them. And out of that trust, you're going to do what they ask because you know and trust that it was probably for a good reason they've asked you that. So you love them enough to respect their wishes. So our trust gives us this freedom to obey and follow. So if grace is freely given to us, handed to us, then there's this freedom that we have now, this freedom from fear. We no longer have to fear acceptance or fear approval or fear of not having enough control in our life or fear of missing out on what those other people are doing. 
Jesus' death and resurrection has put a stop to those fears. So if you no longer have to fear being accepted by God, then what is your motivation to obey? Well, it's love. Love is the motivator. And there's so much joy and freedom that comes in living out this faith in Christ. And there's so much hope that salvation brings. Because salvation brings us into this community with God and with one another. It's like coming home, like finally coming home to this place where you belong. Do you ever get nostalgic for home? Like, have you ever experienced that? Like, if you've been on a long vacation or uh, we've we've been in school for a long time now, so you're ready for Christmas break, like, I just want to go home for Christmas break. And you have these, like, certain things you think of, right, that you just excited for home. Like, when I think of home, I think of chicken and dumplings because that was my favorite meal as a kid, Uh, right? Anyone liking chicken and dumplings? Is that just, like, a West Texas thing? I don't know. It's delicious. Um, I also think of, like, fuzzy socks and sweatshirts and books. Because, like, all I want to do when I think about home is, like, go sit on a couch and just read a book and maybe have some hot chocolate. But we have this image in our mind of, of home, right? Like, this excitement to just be where you don't have to put on a facade. Like, you can be comfortable and you can be yourself and you can just be where you belong. But inevitably after we've been home for a little while, like it's not always as perfect as we imagine, right? Like you get into a fight with your sibling, you make your parents mad, your parents make you mad, or your kids or siblings start fighting over who gets to be the pretend Pokemon first, or your kid pees all over the bathroom floor because he thinks, hey, I'm gonna stand on a stool over here and try and make it into the toilet over there. It didn't work. Um, Or your toddler tries to wipe poop all over a clock because they just want to see how pretty it is. Not that any of these things have happened in my household. Um, So we love the idea of home, right? Like, we have an ideal, but things aren't always as perfect as we think that they're going to be. And that's because we live in a broken world. Nothing is perfect. And we're not made to live in a place with disease and death and sin, and yet here we are. Because we have this feeling that just something's not right, right? Like, have you ever felt that sense of lostness? Like, I just don't fit in here, or, or this, there's just something missing. Like, this just isn't right. Things in this world are not satisfying. First Peter, the whole book, it even talks about how we're exiles and we desire to be home. So salvation is like bringing us home to God. It's bringing us into this community with God where we belong, where our deepest desires and longings are met with Jesus. It's like coming home to where we belong. So how do we move into this community with God? Well, we we gotta truly understand the weight of our sin, of our lostness, whether we recognize it or whether we don't recognize it. We still need to to understand the, the weight of it. And we need to know the beauty of Christ's work on the cross, the cost that he took on himself to cover our sins. Um, you know the hymn, um, Amazing Grace. Um, the guy, John Newton, that wrote it, he wrote this other hymn that I, f- I felt like was really beautiful. And it says, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. And I think that's such a great picture. Like, when we see the full beauty of the gospel, the extent of God's love, of him pouring himself out for his people that don't even 
recognize their need for that at the expense of his own life, then duty and obedience is not a burden, but it's a delight. It's an overflowing of gratitude for what God has done for us. So when we understand the gospel at the heart, then we are changed radically. There's a a greater understanding of the gospel brings a greater awareness of sin and brokenness. So our motivations, our desires, our intentions all change, and we're able to show mercy because we've been given mercy. We're able to forgive even at our own expense because we have a Savior that poured his whole life out for us. So salvation moves us to action. So when you consider the cost of following Jesus, of caring for people the way he did, of standing up for injustice, of, of not falling into these traps of uh, the flesh, of thinking that this is going to, to fulfill me, it's nothing compared to the cost that he paid for us. So let that be the challenge for you, that you would really consider the cost that Jesus paid. Don't let it be just some Sunday school story that we grow up hearing every Sunday. But let it move you in ways that it becomes real to you. See it for yourself. In the Bible it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience it. That he really is who he says he is. And let that be the answer to the doubts that you might have. Let it push you into genuine faith in God. All right, I'm going to pray. Lord, we just come before you. Um, Thank you so much for this story, God, that that it would be such a good representation of what you have done for us. Lord, that you would send your son to pay this, this costly price, Lord, that we can't even imagine, and that we don't even imagine how much we need it. But Lord, I pray that we would just let it be real to us, that we would understand just how much your grace cost to you, Lord, but that you freely gave to us. And Lord, let it move us in a way that we would just genuinely follow you, that we wouldn't fall into temptations and traps and and distractions, Lord, but that we would just um, set our eyes on you, God. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So y'all know where you're going? Ninth, tenth, eleventh, girls. Do y'all know where you go? Good, because I don't.